Good morning, everybody. How are you all this morning? I only heard one good right up here. Nathan's the only one doing good. Oh, that means all of you are doing good, right? Well, it's good to see all of you. Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. And how many of you were here two weeks ago when we had the chalk talk? How many of you were here then? All right, so that means we can jump right in without a lot of, lot of review. We can just do a little bit of review, right? All right, could I have my screen up here? There we are. Well, you remember last week, or two weeks ago, when we did the Chalk Talk, we learned about the importance of trusting God, didn't we? Especially trusting God when we are afraid and you remember that Syria and Israel are friends, right? Right? Syria and Israel are friends, right? No. They're enemies. They're enemies. And for years, Syria has been sending little raiding parties into Israel and attacking Farms and little towns, carrying away captives, carrying away spoil, all of their food, their livestock, their, their goods, and even their people. It's not been very good for years with Syria. Syria and Israel are enemies. And you remember that the king was making some strategies and plans for these bands to do things and other places where they were going to lay in wait. But Elisha knew his plans. And Elisha kept telling the king of Israel exactly what was happening. So that when the Syrians tried to do their strategy, it failed because Israel already knew it. The surprise didn't work. And I love the phrase. It says that this happened not once nor twice. You know what that means? It happened at least three times. And it was really, 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 really irritating the king of Syria. He was convinced that one of his servants was a traitor. He was convinced. But one of his servants told him, it's not us. It's not us. It is Elisha. Because Elisha knows what the king of Syria says, even in his bedchamber. Well, the king of Syria demanded that they find out where Elisha was. And that's what they did. They found out that Elisha was in Dothan. Now you see up here on the map, the big red star, Samaria. If you go straight up from that red star to the next black dot, not diagonal, but more straight up, you see Dothan, 12 miles north of the capital city. Now Samaria, you remember Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel. That King Joram's grandfather, had purchased the land for and built. His name was Omri. Omri built Samaria, and he fortified it. That means that Samaria was a fortress, not just a city. It had a wall. It was a place where you wouldn't go and just raid it. Dothan wasn't so big. Dothan was just a little town. And so it was easy to send this host to get him. And so the king of Syria, he made a secret plot that he was going to go by night and surprise the guy who knows all of his plans. I still find that hilarious. Seeing the king of Syria is determined that he is going to surprise the guy who knows all about his plans. And so at night they come, they surround Dothan, and you remember that next morning, Elisha's servant gets up and he goes up onto the rooftop and he looks and he sees the host of Syria. And he cried out, Alas, my master, how shall we do? He was afraid. He was afraid. And do you remember what Elisha said to him? Elisha answered him and he said, Fear not. Don't be afraid. He said, They that be with us are more than they that be with them. And I remember that servant's looking around and all he sees is him and Elisha. And he's looking at a whole army. And yet Elisha's saying, There's more with us than are with them. And you know, he wasn't talking about the town of Dothan. 
because then he prayed, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And God opened the eyes of Elisha's servant, and Elisha saw that surrounding in the mountains around Dothan was an angelic host, a host of an army of angels. And that servant took heart that day. And two weeks ago when we were learning about this, we stopped right there. And how many of you wondered what would happen? That's what I thought. Few of you, but how come you all didn't wonder what happened? Well, this morning, I want you to forget you know. See, the reason you didn't wonder what happened is because you knew. Or maybe you knew. Or maybe you didn't care. But what happened? Well, you might have imagined that that angelic host just descended and obliterated them, didn't they? No, how do you know? Well, the two armies, the one army is there for Elisha, and the other army is there to get Elisha. So there must have been a battle, right? No, there wasn't a battle. In fact, what happened is that Elisha came down to meet the Syrian army. Now, I want you all to imagine you're the Syrian army. Let's see, how many do we need for the Syrian army? Nathan, Elijah, Micaiah, and Carl. Come here. You guys are the Assyrian army. You come on up here. You're the Assyrian army. And you're coming to get Elisha. You're Dothan. And Elisha comes down and he sees you. And he prays to the Lord. Smite this people. I pray thee with blindness. You know what happened? God smote these soldiers with blindness. Now, that doesn't mean everything went black and they couldn't see anything. It means that their perception and their understanding of what was what and who is who, they didn't know. They didn't know where they were at, and they didn't know that Elisha is about to talk to them. They're coming here to get Elisha. But yet, they are blind in such a way that they don't recognize him as Elisha. And the Lord smote them with this kind of a blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And so then Elisha, he comes to them, and, and he says to them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. Now, you might think, wait a minute, you know they're here for you, and you know this is where the city's at. But it wasn't time. Elisha's telling them, this isn't the place. This isn't what you seek. There's a lesson here for you to learn. And so he leads them, if you look at our map, he leads them out of Dothan on a march a march of 12 miles. How many of you ever marched or hiked 12 miles in one day? Some of you, yeah. It's a, it's a fun day, right? Especially when you're going to get Elisha, right? 12 miles they're going to hike, march from Dothan south to Samaria. So they march all that distance. Now remember, Dothan was a town that didn't even have any walls. They just marched right into the town. And Elisha met them. And they marched right out of that little town on down to Samaria. And when they marched down to Samaria, Elisha led them right through the front gate, right into the heart of that city. And when they got to the very center of that city, Elisha prayed again. And he said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes. And you know what they realized? You are in Samaria. Now you might think this is good, right? Now we can get the enemy. No, 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 no. You're in Samaria, and the whole garrison at Samaria has you surrounded. You're trapped. 
You're trapped in a fortified city. Your situation is hopeless. And guess what? Here's the king. And he is so excited. He's like jumping up and down on the inside. And, and he sees these, these guys. These, these guys have been a thorn in his side for months and years. And, and, so, and so with excitement, excitement, he, he says to Elisha, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldst thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. He's crazy. Has he lost his mind? That's what I would be thinking. He's crazy. I mean, these are probably a combination of several of the bands that have been raiding us for years and causing all kinds of trouble. They've been coming in and they have been hurting our people. They've been kidnapping our people and carrying them away as slaves. They've been stealing all of our food. They've been burning our fields and our houses and our barns. They've been stealing our lambs and our cows and our goats. And you want us to feed them? And send them away to their master? We wish he was here. We didn't show him a thing or two. But Elisha says, no, no. Feed them. Feed them. Give them drink. And let them go. And you can see it. The king says, my father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? I can't, can't wait. And then he says, no, no, feed them. Elisha is teaching the king, Joram, a very important lesson. And he's teaching all of us a very important lesson. Sometimes, sometimes is is a relative word, I know. We don't have time to get into all of it this morning. But in these cases, you feed your enemy. You love them. You do good to them. And you send them away. And you know what? You obeyed. Good for you. I would have had a hard time if I were king. Perhaps he's learned a thing or two. So he prepared great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master, King Ben-Hadad. Went back to Syria, which is back actually up at the top right corner of our screen and out that direction. And it tells us at the end here of verse 23. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. That's good news, isn't it? Mm, Don't get too excited. Because look at the very next verse. Verse 24, and it came to pass after this, that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And some have argued that this is a reason why the Bible can't be true because it's full of contradictions. And here's one of them. It says at the end of verse 23, so the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. And then it says that the Syrians came and besieged Samaria. Now think about this for a moment. If, if you were writing this, do you think you'd miss such an obvious plot hole? If you were making this up, do you think you'd invent a plot hole right next to each other? No, no, no. This isn't a contradiction. This isn't a plot hole. This is history. The bands ceased from coming in. Those little, little, little groups of military soldiers who would fly in, cause their trouble, and disappear. That stopped. Instead, now, Ben-Hadad is like, done with that. You know what we're going to do now? 
I'm going to assemble all of those bands, and I'm going to assemble all of my soldiers, my entire army, and we're not going to just go to the little raiding posts here and there in the little villages. We're going to go to the heart of Israel. We're going to go to their fortress. We're going to go to their strongest, greatest city, and we're going to destroy them completely, including their king. Here his band had received kindness. His band had received food. And you look at it and you think at verse 23, well, they'll go home and now we'll have peace between Israel and Syria. But instead, it's much worse because all of Syria assembles together. And (laughs) you see all those cities? (laughs) Between Samaria and Assyria, it's very likely that as this army marched across the northern plains and through the Jordan Valley, that they left nothing in their wake as they marched directly to the capital. Samaria, the stronghold of Israel, they're going to destroy Israel once and for all, forever. That's their plan. And that's what happened. There's some things in this chapter that will make your ears tingle. (sighs) To be blunt, this is a chapter of horror. We read about sieges. Don't think any of us have experienced a siege. When this army surrounded that city, they cut off everything from the outside world. No more access to the fields. No more access to the hunting forests. You know what ends up happening? A great famine comes to Samaria. You know what a famine is? Where there is no food. All their storehouse has been emptied, eaten up. They are starving in the city of Samaria. You know why? Well, we have to go back. We have to go back to the law of Moses. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Years before this time, in the days of Moses, God had given to him his law. And in Deuteronomy 28, he presented to them blessings and curses. Blessings if they would keep his law and trust in him. And curses if they would disobey him and go their own way. Well, We read of some of these curses and blessings. We've seen some of these come upon them. Look with me in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 15. It says this. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And he goes through a series of curses. Which, by the way, some of these curses were fulfilled in the days of King Joram's father, King Ahab. Where it speaks of a famine. A land famine. Where the, the sky is like, is like bronze. And the earth is like iron. You don't grow anything in iron. 
But you know what? That did not get Israel's attention. And so God, in seeking to draw his people to himself, brings more judges, judgment upon them. And you look at verse 49. This whole chapter is full of curses. It says, The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. He shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land until thou be destroyed, which also shall not leave thee either corn or wine or oil or the increase of thy kind or flocks of thy sheep until he have destroyed thee. He's going to eat up all your food. Verse 52. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates until thy high and fenced walls come down wherein thou trustest throughout all thy land. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. You realize we read of this siege of Samaria. You know, this doesn't happen. Most of the time, as I alluded to a moment ago, in order for you to get to besiege the main fortified capital city, you've had to have conquered many others. And you know what that causes? Refugees. Those who run away to save their lives from their hometowns. You know where they run? Into the fenced cities, into the fortresses, into Samaria. So not only are you now in Samaria with the normal residents and citizens of Samaria, but your walls have been filled with refugees fleeing from their own destroyed homes and towns and villages, hoping to survive in Samaria causing the food supply in the city to even faster go away. And look at what God warns them of. He warned them. He warned them. If you don't follow me, this will happen. He warned them. Verse 53. And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee, in the siege and in the straightness wherewith thy enemies shall distress thee. You would think, oh, you'd have to be a despicable person to do that. God anticipates that objection. Verse 54. So that the man that is tender among you and very delicate, the guy who's really kind and gentle, tender and delicate, his eyes shall be evil toward his brother and toward the wife of his bosom and toward the remnant of his children, which he shall leave. So that he will not give to any of them the flesh of his children whom he shall eat because he hath nothing left in him in the siege and in the straightness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee in thy gates. Even the kind men of the city, they'll not only eat their children, but they won't even share the flesh of their children. Are your ears tingling like mine? Whores. Surely no woman or mother would ever be like this. I mean, you know, some of you might think that's expected. Men would just, you know, watch out for their poor bellies. Verse 56. The tender and delicate woman, woman among you, which would not advance to set the sole of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness. The most gentle and kind woman the woman who never stomped her foot or became angry. The kind woman. The tender and delicate. Her eye shall be evil toward the husband of her bosom and toward her son and toward her daughter and toward her young one that cometh out from between her feet and toward her children which she shall bear. For she shall eat them 
for want of all things secretly in the siege and straightness wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in thy gates. And you might be thinking, how horrible, how could this happen? How could God say such a thing? Well, keep reading what God says. Because God is not saying this because he hates anyone. God is saying this to warn them of how low they could stoop if they forsook him. For he says in verse 58, If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. This doesn't have to be. If the Lord is your God and you fear him, for he is glorious and has a fearful name. Surely Samaria has not stooped to such a level. Surely before Samaria would come to the point of eating their own children, they would turn and trust in God. Surely, surely. Elisha is in the city. Elisha is meeting with the elders. It's implied on a regular basis. It's implied that Elisha has been preaching to the people. He's been calling to the king, to the elders, to the city. Hope in God. Wait upon him. Trust in God. Turn to God. But I'll give you a heads up. They didn't listen. Turn with me to Psalm 33. Psalms 33. Perhaps this psalm, Elisha was preaching to the people. It had been written in his day. They had the song. Perhaps the song he had been preaching to them, calling them to turn to God, to forsake their wickedness. You know, King Joram, uh, he didn't follow in the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel, his parents, and following Baal. Instead, he returned to worship Jehovah. But it wasn't the Jehovah as revealed in the word of God, in the law of Moses. The Jehovah who was described here in Deuteronomy. No, 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 it was the Jehovah of Jeroboam. The golden calves that were set up in Bethel and Dan. Those were Jehovah to Jehoram. And Jehoram served those idols and called them Jehovah. Still causing trouble, trouble, trouble. But perhaps Elisha's preaching from Psalm 33. Follow with me as I read sections from this chapter. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 12, says this. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. They're sure not experiencing blessings, and the reason they're not experiencing blessings is in direct fulfillment of the curses pronounced in Deuteronomy because they did not serve the Lord. They did not serve him. Here it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. These were people chosen for his own inheritance, but they didn't live like it. They lived as if they had no inheritance, if they were not the apple of God's eye. The Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. There is no king Saved by the multitude of an host. Did you hear that, Joram? No king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. It's not strength and might in an army you need. It's not hiring Egypt or Assyria or anyone else to come rescue you. An horse is a vain thing for safety. And by the way, Samaria had some really great horses. Had. There's only a few left, and they're not much to be called horses. We read about that later. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Even if he had a whole host of horses, he, they couldn't deliver you. Behold, verse 18, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Fear God, hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. 
Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. This is the answer for this famine. Hope in God. Trust in God. But that's not what's going on in the city. For one day in this famine, it tells us that the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall. You see him up there? And there was a woman down below. And she saw him. And she cried unto the king. Help, my lord, O king. If the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? Oh, he, you hear what he just said? He just now said, woman, this is Jehovah's fault. You need help? How am I going to help you? Out of the wine press? There's no grapes to put in the wine press. It's dry. Out of the barn floor? Should I tear up the floor and pick the grain out of the floor and feed it to you? There's no grain in the barn floor. Notice here, he uses the Lord. It's the Lord who's going to have to help you, woman. And he's not pointing to her to hope or trust in the Lord. This is said with bitterness of heart in a tone of disgust for the Lord. And after he makes this mockery of God, he remembers, oh yeah, I'm the king. I better be political here. So he looks to her and he says, What aileth thee? This woman said unto me, Give thy son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son, that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. And the king heard this. He tore, rent his clothes in horror. As he passed by upon the wall, the people looked. They looked. And behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. And he said, God, do so and more also to me, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. What he should have remembered were the words of Deuteronomy or the words of Psalm 33. Hope in God. Wait for the Lord. He is our help. He is our shield. Trust in his holy name. But no. He acts like his mummy, Jezebel. And he says almost the same thing. God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha stays on him this day. He can't strike out against God, so he's going to strike out against God's prophet. Before the day's out, he's going to take his head off. Well, meanwhile, Elisha, he's in his house, seated in his house. And um, he has with him elders. Well, we need, we need some elders. Paul, you want to come up and be one of the elders? Mr. Vanderwerf, Mr. Telos, you guys want to come on up here and just be elders here in the house of Elisha? And I think it's not stated, but I think these were men who were trusting in God. They knew that the solution here was not with the king. They knew that the solution was here with God, with Elisha, and seeking Elisha. Well, meanwhile, Elisha's here with the elders. The king of Samaria is furious. He's sworn to take his head off. And so he orders the soldiers to go and take Elisha. Well, here's two of them over here. And these guys start to come. 
these guys are going to come and they're going to arrest Elisha and perhaps even right there at the moment chop his head off. And oh, by the way, the king is on his way too. The king is on his way to Elisha's house. Well, as these guys are coming through the city, weaving their way to come to the door of Elisha, Elisha, he says to the, prof, to the elders of the city, See ye how this son of a murderer hath sent to take away mine head? Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? So you all mobilize. You're going to keep this door. They're not getting through this door. So these guys come to the door to arrest Elisha. I really think they moved faster than that. <laughs> and they're going to bust into this door. But no, they hold it. And Elisha says to hold it because Elisha wants to stay alive long enough. I don't think his concern is about staying alive. But uh, he needs to talk to the king. And he knows the king is just behind just behind. And so the king comes. Not getting through there, guys. They're going to keep it. But when the king comes, apparently, it's implied, the door gets opened up. So they go in. They go in. And the king... Yeah, you're like, oh, now let the king in. Because the king has something to say to Elisha. Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. A Lord, a Lord on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows of heaven, might this thing be? He mocks him. It's a joke. Did you hear what he said? Say it again. Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? What's going to happen? Elisha looked at that Lord and said this. Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. You'll see it, but you won't eat of it. I'd like to look a little closer at what the king said. Look with me there at the end of verse 33. At the beginning, of, at the end of verse 33. The king marched in. He looked into the eyes of the man of God, the prophet of God, Elisha. And he looks at him and he says, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. Do you see the word Lord? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name Jehovah in Hebrew. Here there's this famine. There's this trouble. The ears of the city are tingling. The city has degraded to the point of women eating their own own children. And Joram, this son of a murderer, that's how we know who he is, by the way, son of Ahab, instead of humbling himself before the Lord, instead of hoping and trusting in the Lord, instead of fearing the Lord, instead, he digs into his trench of self-righteousness. He digs into his trench of pride and arrogancy. And he seeks to destroy the life of the man of God. 
And he comes to him and before chopping his head off, says to him, this evil, the famine, the women eating their children, this evil is all the fault of the Lord. Do you remember Deuteronomy 28? The Lord warned that this would happen. Not because he was going to make people eat their children. God had no desire for that. God simply knew that if man persisted in their wickedness and their idolatry to the result of bringing the judgment of an enemy nation, that those people's hearts would be so corrupted, so sinful and wicked and so selfish that they would do these things. God would try their faith. And you know what their faith is showing to be? Not in God, not in themselves, in nothing. Empty and worthless. To the point where they don't even have respect for human life. Remember, I told you about Psalm 33? I don't know that Elisha was preaching Psalm 33. I don't know that he was preaching Psalm 33. But I imagine his themes were the same. What was Psalm 33 all about? Verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Is the Lord your God? No. Is he your God? No. That's why they're experiencing curses instead of blessings. And the Lord looks and he sees and he knows all of this. He considers all their works. He knows how they can be saved. Look at verse 18. Psalm 33, 18. It says, Behold, the isle of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Remember over in Deuteronomy 28, we read about the evil eye of the man and then of the woman. The evil eye, an eye has to do with how people view and see other people. A good eye means that when you see other people, you want good for them. You want to bless them. You want to see their needs and help them with their needs and do what others need and do what is best for others. That's a good eye. An evil eye is one who watches out only for me. The only thing I look upon is the things of my own. That's why we're admonished in the New Testament to look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's having a good eye. Here, behold, the good eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him. But he can't intervene in this situation because there's no fear of him here. They don't hope in his mercy. I don't know what you hope in. Joram, what do you hope in? What does he hope in? He's not hoping in the Lord's mercy. You know how I know that? You see the word there in verse 18, hope? The Hebrew word here translated hope is the same word the king used in his little speech when he saw Elisha. There it's translated wait. He marches into Elisha and he says, this evil is because of God, your God. What? Should I wait? Should I hope for the Lord any longer? This is all his fault anyway. Why would I hope in him? Why would I trust in him? Why would I wait on him? The same word here, translated wait, is translated in Psalm 33, verse 18, as hope. And also at the end, in verse 22, where the prayer is, let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. Do you know what would have been really great? Is if King Jehoram marched into that room in his sackcloth, fell down upon his face and said, 
Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. That was the message, I believe, of Elisha that he had with the elders in that room. I believe their prayer in that room as they anticipated this entourage barging through that door, their hope was, let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. We have two diametrically opposed perspectives here, don't we? Elisha, who says hope in the Lord. And Joram, who says, oh no, I'm done waiting on the Lord. Done with it. The truth is, you never did. And the reason he never did is because he worshiped the Lord. But he wasn't the true Lord. His faith was false. He didn't know the real Lord. And that's why he couldn't hope in him. He couldn't trust in the Lord. Neither could the scoffer. The man, his best friend. Now, I don't know what's wrong with you. Do you have a limp or something? It says he leans upon the hand of a servant. Now, I don't know if that means that he just, you know, always wanted somebody to be with him all the time and a companion, or if he actually had a limp or something, he needs somebody to help him get around. But I do know this. He's his right-hand man. See them two guys? They're together. Be careful who your friends are, who your right-hand men are, who your companions are. I don't think he's helping him. Am I right? You think that guy's helping him? No. Because you see, here he comes with a doubting insult against the Lord. And Elisha responds with a promise. He says, tomorrow, there's going to be food. There's going to be food. Food is a fortune right now in the town. I mean, you pay a fortune just for a donkey's head. You pay a fortune for the dung of a bird to make a fire. Food is rare. That's why they're eating their children. And this guy, he hears this promise that food tomorrow is going to be at market price. And market price is going to be normal price. And what's your friend say? Oh, such a good friend. Now, a good friend would have said, Your Majesty, what the man of God says is true. Let's hope in the promise of God. Because if you look at what he said, if you look at what he said, he started off by saying, Hear ye the word of the Lord. This isn't Elisha's opinion. It's the word of the Lord. He goes on. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Then he says, hear, or thus saith the Lord. It's crystal clear. This is a promise from the Lord. A promise. Trust him. Believe him. That's what a real friend would have said. Did you hear this? We have a word from the Lord. We have a word from the Lord that tomorrow we're going to have food. This famine's over tomorrow. Wow. Let's not blame God for our problems. Let's not curse God for our problems. Let's hope in our God. Let's wait upon our God. Let's wait upon him. We've got guarantee of just one more day to wait upon him. But no, 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 no. Not this friend. What, what, does, what, does, what, does, what does this friend say? Huh. He says, behold... If the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? He's a scoffer. He's like, even if the Lord opened up heaven's windows and poured food out from heaven for us, <laughs> that ain't gonna happen. So what's gonna happen? He's got his sword. The day's not going to end unless Elisha's dead. You said that if Elisha's head isn't gone by the end of the day, so be done to you. 
That's what he said, right? But food doesn't come until tomorrow. And this guy is convinced that no food's coming. So who's going to lose their head? You'll have to come back next week to find out. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, in the meantime, let us heed the instruction of Psalm 33. Let us heed him. Heed it. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For the heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. May this be all of our prayer today. No matter what we're facing, no matter what troubles we're having, no matter what threatens to take away our peace or our joy, let us hope in God. Later this morning in 1 Peter, we're going to learn some more about our hope and how it can cause us to rejoice. Great God, we give thanks for your word, this history, this account. May we learn from it. May we not be as King Joram and his Lord, his servants. But may we be as the very few who hoped in you. May we trust in you no matter what we see, no matter what we fear, but hope, hope in you. Wait upon you and trust in you every day, no matter what. Increase our faith, Lord. Use this history to remind us in our weakness and in our forgetfulness of how important and good it is to trust in you. Lord, we commit the remainder of this day to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.